Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I am your host, Doug Stewart, and with me today is Angela Harders, who is a certified ESOL Spanish and special education teacher from Washington, D.C. She's also the founder of PAX Ministries, Peaceful World Schoolers. I'm really interested in talking about that here as we get into this conversation. And Center for Autodidact Services and Support, a private education association that supports children and families pursuing educational freedom. Angela, thanks for joining us. It is my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Doug. Yeah, it's our pleasure to have you on. This is definitely a topic I know a lot of people in our audience are talking about. It's about government schooling, private schooling, homeschooling, unschooling, all the different educational options for our children. And of course, you know, there are many of us who have non-children, non-our children in our lives that we care about and we care about their education. You know, our discussion is going to take place and it's going to maybe discuss trauma and abuse. And so I would urge parents listening to use, I wouldn't say caution, but just use discernment because the conversation itself might actually veer into uh, talk about what abuse might look like in educational institutions. And so just be careful or pre-listen before you uh, listen again with your kids in the room or something like that. So anyway, Angela, tell us about yourself. You are and were a teacher you can sort of parse out what exactly that means. So tell us about yourself and how you got into education. Yes. So as he mentioned, my name is Angela Harders, and I have been a teacher for the public school system for over 12 years. I started out in an alternative teacher certification route. I was teaching Spanish at a high school. And then after that, I got my master's in bilingual education and shifted to teaching English to speakers of other languages at an elementary school. And I had a while that I was the head of a department of the World Languages Department at a middle school. So I have officially taught every grade from kindergarten through 12th grade. I also got my certification in special education. And I spent my last few years teaching at the same high school that I actually graduated from. And I was teaching Algebra 2 and Biology. So I've done a little bit of everything. (laughs) That's excellent. You probably get asked this, and this is not quite relevant, but it's just an interesting thing to ask people who have been teachers. Do you have a favorite age group? or maybe even a favorite grade or subject that pairs with a grade that you really just absolutely love? I love different aspects of every age group. I don't think I could pick one in particular that was like a favorite. Mm -hmm. There are definitely things that that I liked and didn't like about all of the age groups. Yeah, I can imagine that, you know, depending on your personality, you might gravitate to one another. But it's really cool to see that you've worked with children of all ages and you've done a variety of topics, which is or of subject matter for those students. And so it kind of makes you a really good interviewee for this. And you have a book out called Tales of a Toxic Teacher. Mm-hmm. And so I think we should probably talk about what is a toxic teacher. That's pretty... It could be inflammatory language to some people, but you actually throw yourself into that mix as somebody who used to be a toxic teacher. So tell us what it is. Yes. So I actually open my book by stating that, that I am a toxic teacher. And it is definitely something that I don't think any teacher intends to be a toxic teacher. But over the course of my experience as a teacher, I began to realize that I was causing more harm than good even with Mm. the best of intentions. Of course, every teacher starts their career with the best of intentions of wanting to make a difference in the life of a child and wanting to pass on our, our knowledge and our passion about our content areas and inspire the next generation. 
And yet somewhere along the line, we end up becoming cogs in this wheel, in this system that the system itself is toxic. But in order to be a part of that system, we have to take part in a lot of the toxic behaviors that are expected of us as teachers. And so as I began seeing that, it was one of those things that once you see the abuse in the system, you can't unsee it. And Mm -hmm. I could no longer continue to be a part of a toxic system anymore. And so I actually left the school last year. And now I'm <laughs> I'm working in a different arena, still being a teacher. I think I will always be a teacher, but yeah. um, now I'm dedicating my my life to talking and inspiring parents to actually remove their children from toxic systems and to give their children educational freedom. Excellent. So how soon did it take you to realize that you were a toxic teacher or that this, something was amiss that was bringing up the, you know, our human sin to the surface as you're teaching and in the classroom? Like, was it? You know, about five a couple minutes. years in, five, five minutes. Okay. Yeah, five, five minutes. What, was, on my first what happened in five minutes? That's like a real, that's a, man, that's like a, I don't even know what to describe that. Five minutes. Yep. Uh, no, tell, tell us about that. I actually knew that because I read your book, but tell us about, <laughs> I'm acting shocked for our listeners' view uh, perspective. But no, I mean, what happened in those first five minutes? I mean, was it just the shock of like, you had this imagination of like how your class was going to go and then all of a sudden you had to switch gears in a certain way or what, what happened? Yeah, you know, like I mentioned, I think every teacher becomes a teacher because we want to make a difference in the world and we want to make a difference in the world through making a difference in the life of a child and in my case, thousands of children. And so we kind of go in with these, you know, rose-colored glasses, right? And my first day of my first year teaching, I was 20 years old. I was fresh out of college and I was placed in a school that was known for having a lot of problems. They were having a hard time retaining teachers. And so on my very first day teaching, I walked into my classroom. I had 30 desks in my classroom. My smallest class size was 35 and my largest class size was 42 students. Mm. Um, So even in my smallest class size, we didn't have enough desks. We didn't have textbooks enough for the whole class. And the textbooks that we did have were extremely outdated. We didn't have any access to paper. I wasn't allowed to make any kind of copies. They literally handed me an eraser with no chalk and a stapler with no staples and said, here you go, <laughs> go teach. And that was that was wow. about it. Um, and so on my first day, I had a whole, you know, the bell rang and all these students piled into my classroom. And obviously we didn't have enough desks. And there was a young man that decided that he was going to sit on one of the desks and then put his feet into the desk in front of him. And so I politely asked him if he would remove his feet from the seat in front of him, to which he stood up, pushed the desk in my direction. And he was about a foot taller than me. And so he was staring down at me and started using some strong language, um, obscene language (laughs) with me and asking me who the F I was to tell him what to do and that he doesn't have to listen to a be like me. And I just very, I was shaking and I said, I'm your teacher. And, but I was extremely terrified. And he picked up the desk, threw it at me and walked out of class. And I never saw him after that until graduation day when he walked across the stage and they handed him a diploma. Wow. So he didn't even have to show up to your class. And I'm assuming that he probably wasn't that great in other classes either. It wasn't just you. Yeah, no. And my class was actually a required class for him to graduate. And I asked a teacher that was sitting next to me, hey, how did he, how is he walking across the stage? Because I knew that he needed to pass my class in order to graduate. And I did not see him since the first day of school. 
And she just said, don't ask questions. It's better for us to just pass them through and they can be society's problem and they're not going to be our problem anymore. She's like, trust me, you don't want to have to deal with him for another year. And so as soon as we got back to the school, I went and looked at my grades immediately. I had given him straight zeros because he never came to class. right. And someone had gone in and changed all of his grades to 60%, which meant that he had Ds all across the board and he passed. Hmm. Yep. So this was this would have been about 12 years ago. Do you, yep. you know? And so now he's 30s or something like that or late 20s. Do you have any idea how he's doing? No clue. No, no clue. No, okay. I wonder about him sometimes though. Yeah. Well, I mean, it obviously made a lasting impression. I mean, you, you started off your book with this pretty close to the beginning of the book. You started off with that. So I'm sure... I'm sure uh, you, you wish him well at this stage in his life. But that's a great example of a terrible situation that I think a lot of people find themselves in in education, at least you know, with respect to the outrageous... I think my parents' generation would call it disrespect. Mm-hmm. But I think you would probably identify, and I think I would agree with you here, that there's more to this than, oh, kids nowadays just don't respect teachers. Yeah. Like there's a deeper problem that it's, yeah. it goes deeper than just like, I mean, it's obviously, you know, a societal thing. Mm-hmm. What is the education system designed to do? Because, you know, we could talk about how education is broken, but you actually write about how it's not actually broken, it's operating as expected. Yeah, exactly. People ask me that all the time. They make comments about the educational system being broken. And you're right, it's not true. The educational system is not broken. It is working exactly the way that it was intended to. And our educational system was designed to create factory workers. It was designed to create employees. It was designed to create peaceful citizens that would obey authority without question and would willingly submit to authority figures in their life, mm. or rather supposed authority figures in their life. And we do assigned a very good authority. job from that. Yes, assigned authority. And, uh, and we do a great job of, of teaching children to do that from the moment that they enter the school system until the moment that they leave. Yeah. Wow. So that first year, so you after five minutes and you, this kid walks out of your class and you're probably a little shocked and, and yeah. traumatized by that a little bit. I'm guessing you didn't jump from what you just said within another five minutes that there was probably a process by which you kind of realized there's something deeply, gravely wrong with how this was originally set up. Yeah. And there's a much better option out there, which we're going to talk about later on here. Mm-hmm. What did you do in the interim to do the best you could to be a teacher that actually made an impact in the lives of your students? Because clearly you care about the education of students. If they're in a bad system, you're in a bad system, you're going to do the best you can. What were some things that you had to overcome? And then how did you overcome those? One of the things that I did was I always made sure to go above and beyond for my students. And one of the things that I was pretty well known for is even though I was a new teacher, I actually organized a trip for my students to go to Guatemala over our spring break. And we served for a week in an orphanage there. And we did a lot of humanitarian work. And many of my students finished all their community service hours in that week that we were there. I really tried Mm. my best to get my students out of the classroom as much as I could and get them into the real world and learning from the real world. At the time, you know, when I was teaching high school, I was a Spanish teacher. So we would have field trips to go to Spanish-speaking restaurants. I managed to get my students free tickets to a baseball game, to a Washington Nationals baseball game so that they could go and experience baseball because a lot of them didn't know the game. And we were assigned to read books about baseball that they had no context for. And um, Which everybody so, knows is the best way to learn about baseball <laughs> is to read a book about it. Right? Yeah. 
Yeah. So um, while they're reading this book, they just, they were really struggling to understand, you know, it was taking so long to teach the book because they, they didn't know that content, you know, they played basketball and soccer and yeah, we did, we did a field trip to go to a Washington Nationals game and had a blast there. And so, I mean, from the beginning, I've always been a teacher that has really tried to connect with my students and to help them to connect with the real world as much as possible. Yeah. Administratively, did you get any support when you had to report things that were wrong? I mean, you said you weren't even allowed to use the copyright. How does a teacher not even allowed to use a copyright? I don't, I don't understand. I mean, I can understand, oh, hey, there's a shortage of chalk. Maybe on first day, <laughs> that's really weird. But like, I can understand there's a shortage of something for temporarily... You know, I remember my daughter, she, um, when she went into kindergarten, her teacher's classroom wasn't fully set up because there were things mm-hmm. on delay. And this was, gosh, five, six years ago, actually more than as seven, eight years ago. And so it's not like COVID delayed things. And so it's like, okay, well, that's understandable. And, you know, things kind of got better, you know, after the first couple of weeks. But like, man, like, how did you handle... And it's not like you probably made a lot of money as a teacher. So it's no. not like doing these things... And I hear these stories a lot, right? We hear the how teachers are like so committed, they spend their own money on things and they shouldn't have to do that and they, and they yeah. do all of this. But like, what were some of the hardships? I mean, I mean, you can be as specific as you want to about some of the hardships that students go through and that you also went through as a teacher. Mm. Well, when it comes to supplies, you know, as I mentioned, we didn't really have access to a lot of supplies at the first school that I was teaching at. And, and in fact, that year, my parents gave me a whole box of copy paper for Christmas. That was my Christmas gift that year was paper, <laughs> paper so that I could, you know, print worksheets and tests and quizzes and stuff like that for my students. But my, you know, students from kindergarten through 12th grade, they're just coming in with a whole world of issues that I think most teachers aren't even aware of. In fact, I wasn't even aware of it until a day when I had asked a student, he had not done any of his homework. And I told him, I was like, if you just would put in the time and effort and do your homework, I guarantee you can pass this class. And I remember he just looked at me. He said, "Miss Harders, why do you think I would give an F about your stupid Spanish homework? He's like, I'll be lucky if I'm alive by the time I'm 18. Why would I care about Spanish homework? And mm. when he said that, it was just like this punch in the gut for me because, I mean, he's right. you know. And, and he told me, he was like, every single man in my family is either dead or in prison by the time that they're 18. I don't give an F about your Spanish homework. And wow. you know, he, it was just a completely different worldview that I could not relate to. I had no experience with that kind of a mentality that if if that's all you know, is that as an African-American male, you have no hope of being, you know, your expectation is that by 18, I'm either going to be dead or in prison like everyone else that I know. Yeah. Why would you care about Spanish homework? Why would you care about algebra two? Why would you care about writing an English essay on, you know, whatever random topic someone's forcing you to write about that you don't care about? You know, it just... They've got all these other things that are going on in their lives. And then on the flip side, you know, in elementary school, I had students whose, you know, parents were deported or in prison or getting divorced or having these issues at home. And and then we just expect them to show up to school and learn about all this stuff. And then we tell them what to do all day long. And they're just not (laughs) in a place to do that. You know, it's very, very challenging. The content is definitely secondary. (laughs) I've encountered students from time to time who say things like that, not in the 
pretty dire sense that, you know, like I might not live past high school or I might be imprisoned. And there's not a whole lot you can say in terms of like, well, actually, you could use your Spanish in this way. I mean, or, you know, you could be smarter than the other inmates. Like, you're not going to say things like that. Yeah. There's like nothing to appeal. Like, you just have to listen and you have to empathize. And yeah. I can imagine that's pretty difficult to do. Mm-hmm. Wow. I, I don't even know what question to ask next because it's like <laughs> that sits heavy with me mm-hmm. a bit because there's a lot of students out there that are like that. And mm-hmm. even, let's say on a lesser level, there's a lot of students out there who have the same attitude. Why do I need to learn this? Mm-hmm. Did you ever encounter students who made like a really good case as to why they shouldn't care about your class? Um, I, I did. And in fact, I, I think <laughs> I had gotten to the point as a teacher where I would tell them the same thing. I would tell them, they're, you are not going to use this ever in your actual real life. And really, I mean, it was the only way that I could be authentic and honest with them. Because the truth is, mm. you, are, you are never going to graph a quadratic function on a piece of graph paper ever again in your life. I haven't done it. And if you do, you'll figure out how to do it and learn <laughs> it. And then you'll use it for your job because that's what you need to do. Like, exactly. It's, exactly. It's, it's, narrow, it's narrow and you'll figure it out. I don't even know anyone in their actual job that is graphing quadratic functions. Like we have computers and programs that do <laughs> I, all I this. I don't even know what a quadratic function is, but okay. <laughs> and <laughs> the, okay, it. so You're the okay. reason I use the re- yeah, I am. I actually am. Um, what's interesting <laughs> is uh, my my friend and I we were we each were working on a house edition over the past year, and he did a whole lot more than I did on his. And he actually had to use trigonometry to deal with like trusses and all kinds of stuff. And uh. I was like. Uh, I don't remember those things. And somehow he did and, <laughs> and was able to apply them. Yeah, But like you find out how you learn those things. I mean, one thing that I've done with my kids, because I think every parent whose kids come home and say, why do I have to learn this? They have to come up, well, it's just what we have to do. <laughs> and I tell Mike, I am actually honest with my kids. I'm like, you know what? This particular thing, you're not going to need to learn. But what you do need to learn is the discipline of of doing things that you don't like. And mm-hmm. that, that tends to help. Maybe you don't like that answer because you're a teacher and you want to give them much different options. <laughs> the idea that kids have to sort of endure things that they don't like might actually be a skill that they have to do. So like there's a silver lining, I suppose, with that. I do want to talk a little bit about because your book isn't just about your tales of a toxic teacher. There are mm-hmm. things that you offer. There's an analysis that you offer with the education system. You talk about different structural problems in the education mm-hmm. system. So what I don't want our listeners to do is think that you're just telling your stories, which you are, and you're, you're giving context and you're giving examples of what's going on in there. But you talk about things like compliance without resistance. Mm-hmm. assignment of irrelevant tasks, which we've kind of already talked about a little bit, systematic routines and habits that they have to do that's like show up at 8 o'clock, stay there until 3 o'clock, you do lunch at this time, you go to the bathroom at this time, you know, all those kinds of things. You line up, you make sure that you're in a row and you don't step out of line. And one thing that I... This is terrible that I haven't even thought about this as part of the structural problem. And again, to frame it as a problem, even though that's by design, is the separation from parents. Mm-hmm. In an industrial society, which, you know, is where schooling was born out of, it makes sense that you would have dad go off to work, mom at home, send the kids to school. And Mm -hmm. when I say makes sense, like you can sort of picture why that's a model that seems to be, you know, not very um, irritable to look at and analyze. With my family, we've chosen, we've actually got kids doing kind of a variety of things, each of our three kids, but they're home. We get to see them a lot. And when I read your book... Uh, which I finished up last week as we're recording this, the separation from parents actually hit me in a way that I didn't, I didn't really think too hard about. It's like, wow, like 
I remember when we were, when my wife and I were kind of early career, we needed a place for our kids so that we could develop, you know, the early parts of our career. We were both in grad school and school sort of became childcare. Mm-hmm. And it was good childcare. I mean, we we went to a private school. They were well provided for. Nothing that I'm aware of, like anything like what you wrote in your book. These are, you know, Christian teachers who love these kids. They my kids still, you know, rave about their early years there. And so it is easy for parents to say, well, this is just what I gotta do. I gotta send my kids away. Mm-hmm. And that's not healthy. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's definitely not. It's I don't think that it's the way that our families and our family relationships were intended to function. But again, that idea of most children are are being forced to attend school at the age of five for kindergarten, at least in our area. Um, they have to attend kindergarten at five years old. And many of them on the first day are, are crying and they're miserable. And like the first day of kindergarten, most of the time is a very long cry fest <laughs> over like the first week or so. Um, they're just, <laughs> they don't want to leave home. They don't want to leave their parents. And having that kind of forced separation from the people that know you and love you and the people that you trust at such a young age, I think is very harmful for a lot of children. I would go as far as to say that for some children in particular, it can even be very traumatic, a very traumatic experience Mm. for them and something that they carry with them. But, you know, a lot of parents just really view school almost as free daycare. And even in a private school, granted you're paying for private school, but it really is kind of almost serving as that purpose as as a daycare service so that, you know, mom and dad yeah. can work and do these other things. And I'll, I'll just chime in for a second. In our situation, we actually did the math with the private school and the childcare we were already paying. And we're like, wait a second, we almost break even and they're getting an education. Mm-hmm. So it makes no sense to just have them like the, it just kind of carried at the babysitting stage, carried into school at no additional cost, yeah. <laughs> even in a private school situation. Yeah. So you're, you're right. It is, it is that temptation. And I mean, there is a sense in which like, I don't think I would be capable of schooling my kids at that age. And some people are, some mothers are, some fathers are. It really depends. And so I don't want to, you know, we could sit here and talk about how these are less than ideal decisions for parents to make. But I don't think neither you nor I have any sense of judgment toward people who make that choice. Yeah, no, I mean, I could definitely relate. I'm, you know, I'm a single mom myself. And so being able to homeschool for me, it, definitely is a sacrifice. It's not something that's easy. And I had to sacrifice a lot of things in order to be able to make this choice. At the end of the day, I think no matter what we choose is going to be hard, right? Like homeschooling our kids is hard. Sending our children to private school or public school is hard. Um, And I think at the end of the day, we all have to just kind of choose our heart and be satisfied with our choice. And a lot of times I try to really get to the root of, of that issue of like, Am I just using this as a childcare service by asking parents this question? I ask them, if you had to pay for your child to attend this school, would you still do it? And mm. most of the time when I ask them that, you know, I let them know for to attend a public school in my area, it's $15,000 a year for a child to, to attend a public school in, in my county. So would you want to pay $15,000 for your child to attend this school and almost every single time, like literally, I don't think I've ever had anyone say no, but almost everyone says that they would not pay $15,000 for their child to attend the public school. And I use that as this barometer to be able to say, if you would not be willing to pay for your child to go to this place, let me tell you 100%, this is costing you something much greater than money. If you're not willing to invest your money in this place, it is costing you something. Mm -hmm. 
And I think it's just really being able to look at that cost, honestly, and say, what is it costing me really to have my child separated from me all day long, to be in this environment, to be taught these things, to be surrounded by these people? What is that really costing me? Yeah, well, I mean, those those unseen costs will either be seen in non-monetary ways, right? Mm-hmm. Or they'll be seen later down the road mm-hmm. in, you know, children's lives, things like that. Yeah. You link in your book, you talk about the similarities between the school systems and emotional abuse. Mm-hmm. You want to talk a little bit about that? Because I think yeah. that's a really key component of your case against government schooling and against the schooling system as we have kind of known it. Mm -hmm. So I was actually in an abusive marriage for a little bit over a year. And in the course of that marriage, I, of course, I never intended to ever be divorced. I always believed that divorce was wrong and that as a Christian that I'm called to remain married for, you know, till death do us part. Mm -hmm. It was not in my plans (laughs) at all to find myself in an abusive marriage. And as I was in the midst of that marriage, I thought that we were just kind of dealing with, you know, maybe newlywed problems or something like that. And I had a friend reach out to me and say, this, what you're going through is not a newlywed problem. I think there are other things at issue here. Please look into abuse, learn about abuse, research about this Mm -hmm. and see. And so as I did... I feel like God just really opened my eyes to a lot of the things that I was experiencing in my marriage. And one of the main things that I learned about as I was researching was something called the domestic violence, the power and control wheel of abuse. And the power and control wheel of abuse, for those of you that may not be familiar, it's basically a circle. There are eight different components that make up the different aspects of an abusive relationship. And some of those things are force, threats, manipulation, humiliation, isolation, gaslighting, blaming, shaming, um, using the children against one another, things like that. And so I was able to see all of those things in my marriage. But as I was reading about this power and control wheel, I could not help but see the exact same things in what I was doing as a public school teacher. I was seeing the aspects of force and control. I was seeing the manipulation and the threats and the bribes and the punishment and the humiliation Mm. and the isolation and all of those things. And literally every single aspect of the power and control wheel, I was reading it through the lens of domestic violence, but I began to see it in the context of the school system and forced schooling environments, both public and private. And so it was one of those things, once you see it, you can't unsee it. And that was when I knew that I needed to write my book and be very specific and explicit about how every single aspect of those eight different aspects of the power and control wheel are present in the public Mm. school system. They're present in all forms of forced schooling and they are intrinsically abusive. Wow, that's a pretty big indictment. And to make it worse, you actually talk about trauma bonding. (laughs) (laughs) What makes, why is that something that makes it worse? (laughs) Yes, you know, for me growing up, and just kind of reflecting on my own educational background, I really loved school. You know, I, it's one of the reasons why I became a teacher. I I loved the structure of it. I was kind of the teacher's pet. I was the, you know, the, I guess you could say like the goody two-shoes kind of growing up. I was the good mm. Christian girl that did everything I was supposed to. And so it was really hard for me to look back on the things that I had experienced and be able to look through this new lens and say, wait a second, Mm. a lot of these things really were causing harm, even though in the moment I didn't identify it as such. But there is that aspect of trauma bonding where we really can't, it's hard to look back and reflect and see these things that we've been through and see the way that the system is designed and to be able to look at that and say, yes, that is abusive. 
this isn't right. We shouldn't be treating people this way. We shouldn't be interacting with children in a coercive and threatening and violent way. Yeah, so (laughs) that whole aspect of trauma bonding is definitely very challenging, I think, for us as adults to put on a new lens and to be able to look at this through new eyes and to really honestly reflect on our experiences and to see, is this really lining up with my beliefs and values first and foremost as a Christian and really be able to let go of kind of those those trauma bonds that we have yeah. and wanting to believe the best about the experiences and the people that we've interacted with, whether they were you know intentionally or unintentionally abusive. Yeah, I think there's a lot of unintentional things going on there. And I think yeah. in, in a way, people get an inheritance of those habits, their habit forming. I mean, you went to school, yeah. you were like, hey, this is really nice. I want to do this. And and then all of a sudden you're in it and you realize what's going on. And if you don't change and if you don't get <laughs> out of it and you don't you try to reform the system or convince a lot of people that, you know, something's, you know, egregiously wrong with this method, mm-hmm. you know, it just keeps cycle over and over and over. Yeah. And you have begun to or have developed a, a way out for teachers and for parents to go through yes. that. And you have a three-step sort of program, and it's you know you describe it as leave school, de-school, and world school. Mm-hmm. Go ahead and describe. I think leave school is almost self-explanatory, but maybe <laughs> there's some nuance there if you want to explain that. De-schooling and world schooling. What are what are those? So de-schooling is this process that we go through where we're unlearning a lot of the things that we have been indoctrinated to believe about what schooling is, what's what learning is, the way that learning is supposed to look. It's kind of peeling back the layers and asking why a thousand times. Why do I have to learn Algebra 2? Well, because it's in the curriculum. Okay, well, why is it in the curriculum? Who says that this is what I need to learn in order to be able to be a productive member of society or to do whatever it is that I you know, want to pursue in my life as a unique individual with unique God-given gifts and talents? And then again, asking why, why, why? Peeling back those layers. So de-schooling is that process of really unlearning everything that we have learned and asking those questions and getting to the root and kind of looking for our own and uncovering our own beliefs and biases about education and school and learning and life and all of these other things. And then world schooling, many people might be more familiar with the term unschooling, but I'm not really a fan of the term unschooling, which is why I prefer the term peaceful world schooling. And with world schooling, that is a philosophy where we view the entire world as our classroom and all of the people and places in it as our teachers. And so it really kind of strips away this schooling mentality where we can begin to see all of life as learning and all of the learning that we do as valuable and really being able to give our children the opportunity to direct their own education and to guide their own learning. What's the difference between that and unschooling? Like, what is it that you don't like about unschooling? You can be provocative here. It's okay. <laughs> um, mostly the name. I, I think that when people hear the term unschooling, it really puts them off of like, mm. oh, you're... I think people have this idea in their head when they think of unschooling that we're just kind of not doing anything and we're... You it's know, almost like you're saying ads. we're anti-learning. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. Um, I, I think a lot of people have that idea when they hear that term. So I wanted to be able to create a term that I felt like would communicate more what we were committed to rather than just what we were avoiding. Mm, which I is see. Cool. Yeah. So in a world schooling model, I mean, it's, you talk about like, that's what you do with your kids. Um, <laughs> what does a day look like? <laughs> like what? Is, what does a week look like? I mean, what does spell that out a little bit so that people can kind of get a vision for the the better world? Yes. So when we think about, for me, it goes back to my core principles, right? Like I have these 
these core principles as a gentle parent, as a Christian, that I want to treat my children with, with kindness, with gentleness, with respect, with love, that I'm here to guide them and support them. Again, that would look like not interacting with them in a coercive or abusive way. And so when we remove those elements of coercion, when we remove those elements of threats and humiliation and bribes and all of those things, what we're left with really is freedom. And I believe that God has given each of our children unique talents and gifts that they are meant to use and to contribute to the world in unique ways. And our job as parents is to help them support them as they grow into the unique human being that God has created them to be. So what that looks like for us in a practical sense is that we do not use any kind of curriculum. We believe that the child is the curriculum. And of course, we can use more traditionally educational things but we're guided by my children's unique passions and interests. So for example, my daughter is eight years old and she loves telling stories. She is a huge storyteller, is constantly listening to stories. Every time we're in the car, she wants to tell a story. And so one of the ways I supported her in her learning is that she wanted to write and publish a book. And so she's eight years old and she has published three books already. And she's actually working on her fourth book now, which is going to be her first chapter book. So that's, you know, something that she's interested in and she's passionate about. And so I'm supporting her as she needs it in that. My son is four and he is really, really interested in trucks. And so rather than reading a book about a bunch <laughs> of random trucks, today we I booked a tour for us to go to our local fire department and we got to go to the fire department and really experience the trucks. You got to see how big the tires were in comparison <laughs> to his size, right? Yeah, all of it. <laughs> he, he got to like climb inside of them and he got to try on, you know, the boots and the helmets and all that fun stuff. And I mean, just to see his his face, you know, having this this real life, real world experience, he's connecting with people in the community. And then afterwards, you know, we're we're actually, they're working on this now, but we're going to write some thank you notes to our local firefighters. So they're practicing writing. They're learning how to, you know, mail letters and stuff. And mm. so, yeah, so that was what we did today. This morning, we went to the fire station. And so, yeah, just really looking for opportunities to primarily focus on connecting with your child, getting to know them as the unique individual that they are. And second, looking for ways that you can support them in their passions and their gifts and really being able to kind of let go of this need to try to like force and control and manipulate things. And when we give our children that educational freedom, they have the time and the desire to cultivate their intrinsic motivation and their natural love of learning. So in the state of Pennsylvania, where I live, we have a homeschooler and my wife has to have an evaluation every year. Mm-hmm. How does the world schooling model deal with the fact? And maybe you don't have to. I I don't know which state you're in. I forget what you said, but yeah, we're in Maryland. Yeah, so yeah, I don't think you're too far away from where I live. I don't know what Maryland has, and I know other states are very different. Some are a lot more, you know, homeschool, unschool, deschool, whatever friendly, <laughs> right? Because yeah. I guess by their standards, you'd be classified as homeschool, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so how does, do you have evaluations that you have to do and submit and like show, hey, here's how they're learning and they do know how to add, they do know that two plus two is four, unless there's some exception where they're, you know, critical race theorists or something and it's five. <laughs> I don't know. But um, sorry, I had to throw that in there. Like, what, how do you deal with evaluations or do you have them? Great question. So in my state, people can have evaluations if they want to. 
they're supposed to have evaluations with the state and submit like a portfolio and stuff like that. So when we first started homeschooling, we actually homeschooled through an umbrella that didn't require a portfolio. They're very unschooler friendly. Mm-hmm. So we had a meeting at the end of the year where we got to talk about our homeschooling and talk about what we do. I also document what we do. So like on my Instagram and my Facebook, I'm constantly sharing kind of what a day in the life of an unschooler or world schooler would look like for us so people can see this is what we're doing every day. Mm. We're not just sitting at home, although there is benefit in sometimes just sitting at home chilling. But yeah, we, we do stuff all the time. And again, you know, when we can really view all of life as learning, it just it changes the whole game. You know, I can look at my four-year-old playing Legos and he's not just playing Legos. He is learning patterns. He's learning building. He's learning physics. He's learning math. He's learning counting. He is learning all these different valuable skills. He's learning how to take turns with his sister. He's learning how to share. He's learning Mm. so much in this one activity of building Legos that he loves. And that learning is just as valuable as any other kind of learning that he would do anywhere else. And I would I would argue to say even much more so valuable because it's something that that he's interested in that he really enjoys. And ultimately, that's what we want to do in life is figure out what we love and what we enjoy and find out a way to get paid to do it. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's kind of the model that my wife and I have taken in terms of our kids' interests and how yeah. they approach school. I mean, we... We've we've done various models, and I would say that we are comfortable with where we've chosen for each of our kids, given their you know unique learning styles, their abilities to you know, their social preferences, and things like that. Mm-hmm. The one thing that I would wonder is, as a parent, part of our responsibility is to, in some sense, direct our kids along a good path. Mm-hmm. Now that path isn't necessarily the same for every kid, even in the same family. Yeah. It's not the same for, you know, of course every every student generally speaking. And so every kid is going to have sort of their own path. So as a parent, yeah. you're likely going to have to pay attention to what your son is into and not just what he's into as in like, oh, he's into trucks and Legos right now and so we're going to do things that are going to support that, but like understanding his personality, understanding what he's likely to likely to, and and I'm going to use that loosely, to do in a future job, right? Like there's probably going to be things that generally speaking are ruled out for either of your kids just by virtue of their interests, their skills, and and things like that. Mm -hmm. How much of that burden that you have as a parent is reflected in your decisions to see the world? I mean, you get to decide where in the world you go, right? You got to decide to go see the trucks based on that. Now he's four, so... Mm -hmm. It's a little, it's young at this point, but like when you get up into the older years, it's like, well, okay, we don't have an unlimited amount of time in terms of like our day and even for that matter, the number of years, you know, for our kids. Yeah. How do you help determine, steer them? And I, and I don't want to use the word steer as in like manipulate. I don't mean it in that <laughs> way. But if you know your kids well, you won't steer them wrong. Mm-hmm. How much of that is involved in what you're, in what you're doing? Yeah, I mean, I definitely have conversations with them about, hey, you know, I think it would be useful and important to to learn this or to practice this skill. But ultimately, I think my desire for my children is that they would be lifelong learners and that they would love learning. Because a child that loves learning is going to be able to learn whatever they need when they need it, you know? Whereas a child that is constantly being forced and coerced to learn things they don't value or that they don't care about or doesn't have any relevance or meaning for them. It just kind of (laughs) makes learning miserable for them and for the parent Mm -hmm. too. So yeah, I mean, we have conversations all the time. I'm not, I'm not in the driver's seat of their, their learning. They're in the driver's seat of their learning. They're choosing and I try to invite them to choose as much as possible. 
it was definitely something I was concerned about when we first started this journey of unschooling and world schooling. I was worried about, you know, how this would turn out. It really kind of started as an experiment. I just, I was like, you know what, I'll try this for a year and see, hope I don't mess them up and (laughs) we'll see how it goes. But, you know, four years into it, we love it and we're not looking back. But during that time, I learned about a lot of other unschoolers and I read about unschoolers that had gone on to college And it was fascinating for me. I would hear multiple unschoolers say that they had never done a math worksheet in their entire life and that they would learn all of the math that they needed from kindergarten through 12th grade in less than two months, all of it. And not just one person, but like multiple of them. Yeah. And the constant thing that I would hear from them was that same thing that when they have a reason to learn it, when they have a a motive to learn it, when they have a genuine interest in learning it, even if they don't love it, right? Like a lot of them didn't love math. If they love math, they would have been learning it all along. But they knew if I want to go to college to achieve XYZ in my career, I have to learn this that I don't like. And because they had a reason to do it, they were able to learn it quickly. They were able to learn Mm -hmm. it well. And they were able to learn it extremely efficiently at a much higher level than any of my students that I've seen that have spent 13 years in a forced schooling environment. And so, yeah, so I'm not so worried about that now because I trust that when the moment comes, if that's something that they will need on their unique path, they're going to learn it. And they're going to learn it so much easier than if I tried to like force them to do it all along the way. So... Have you had parents come to you and ask about like, what what do we do with our son who all he wants to do is play video games? Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, how, do, how, do you, how do you help them? I'm, <laughs> that's a, that's I'm asking a for one. a friend. <laughs> <laughs> that's a big one. Again, I really think it comes back to when we can, again, when we can really see all of life as learning and all learning as valuable. It, I had someone challenge me once because I had that same fear. I was like, oh my gosh, if I just you know, what if my kid just wants to be on video games all day? Like, oh no, you know, she asked me, she was like, would you have that same fear if all your daughter wanted to do was read books about horses all day? Like, would you be worried, you know? And it was like, no, I wouldn't be worried. Like if she wanted to read books about horses all day, I wouldn't be worried at all. But if she wants to play Minecraft all day, then now I'm like anxious and stressed and nervous and like, oh my gosh. Um, And so she just challenged me. She's like, I challenge you really, like when your daughter is playing something that she loves, Go and sit with her, watch, like play with her, get into her world. See what is it that she loves and enjoys about this. Look for the learning that she's already doing. And so I did, I was like, okay, I'm gonna take off my teacher hat and I'm gonna become a student of my child and I'm gonna join her in what she's enjoying. I'm just gonna be present with her and I'm gonna look for the learning that she's doing. And it was fascinating. You know, she played some games on Minecraft and I went and I played with her and she was like teaching me how to do this stuff and how to like, she was like running a bakery or something like that in yeah. in Minecraft. And she was like having a blast and she was having to like multitask and she was, you know, chatting with all these other people, like with people and um, they have like a secure chat. So I make sure that she like can't, you know, type certain things yeah. and chat with, you know, we have to, of course, be mindful of like safety and stuff. Yeah, but, right. But she was, you know, so she's typing and learning how to spell and she's reading in the chat how other people are selling their things and she was pricing stuff and getting items that she needed and like, and I'm looking at all these things that she's doing and I'm like, wow, like these are some really valuable skills that she's learning here, like the multitasking and the ordering and the numbers and the adding and the sales and, you know, just all of it. Like I was like, wow, okay, so there is learning that's happening Mm. here, even though it was a video game. Whereas like for me, I would have looked at that before and just been like, oh, she's like wasting her time on a video game. But when I joined her now, I was able to really look and see, wow, like she is learning 
valuable skills that are going to help her in the future. And sometimes, you know, even for me as an adult, I like to play games sometimes just for the sake of having fun. And and that's okay too. But I found that when we remove those those restrictions, that was something I was really worried about. Like if I if I just let her choose how she wants to spend her time, she'll just go crazy and be on screens all day. And I found that when I removed those like exterior restrictions, it kind of took away the draw of it. Um, there were at the beginning, she did want to like play a lot on screens. But I found that every time that I invited her to do something with me, she would much rather choose to be with me than be on a screen. So if I would invite her, hey, do you want to come and cook lunch with me? Like, oh, yeah, you know, like she would come. Or if I wanted to invite her to like build a puzzle or play a board game or something like that, like she wanted to be with me more than she wanted to be on a screen. So, yeah, (laughs) that's my my two cents on the topic. Yeah. Um, No, it's probably worth more than two cents there, I think. (laughs) Thanks. So... Yeah. So where can people find you online? What is it? You, I think it's, uh, I don't want to give the wrong domain name. So I'll let you uh, give out your website and everything. So how can people reach you? And what will they find when they go on your website? Yes. Um, my website is www.peacefulworldschoolers.com. And as you mentioned, my Peaceful World Schools is one aspect of our private ministry. So if you have not heard of PMAs yet, I definitely encourage you to research this topic. We actually do our homeschooling through our PMA now, so we don't have to do any of the portfolio reviews or annual reviews anymore. Mm. Um, We homeschool entirely through our private ministry, and so we don't have to worry about any of that stuff, which is really cool. I offer courses and all different types of things. I have a podcast as well, the Peaceful World Schooling Podcast, where I talk about peaceful world schooling and gentle parenting and um, a lot of these topics that are really near and dear to my heart and learn about other families that have been kind of living these alternative lifestyles, I guess, and homeschooling. And you can also find me on Instagram at Peaceful World Schooler. And I also have a YouTube channel called Peaceful World Schoolers. So yeah, I would love for you to subscribe and you can check out and learn more about how our life is and what it's like to be a Peaceful World Schooler. I also have a Facebook group too. So you're welcome to join that as well. Peaceful World Schoolers Facebook group. I'm working on planning trips now to do some international service trips with other Christians that we can go and do missions trips. I used to go on missions trips when I was, you know, middle school and high school, but I really love to be able to create opportunities for families to go on missions trips. Mm -hmm. And so I'll be creating that. So if any of you are interested in serving the Lord internationally and would like to do so with your children, I think this will be a great opportunity and I would love to partner with you guys in that. Excellent. You mentioned gentle parenting, which is might be something we need to talk about on a future episode. So, because uh, <laughs> yes. uh, I know that that's a, a really good topic to talk about. So, Angela, thank yes. you so much for joining us. I encourage everybody to check out all those things that she just mentioned, all those websites and groups and channels. And man, I don't even <laughs> know how to summarize all that. Check her out <laughs> online. How about that? There we go. Again, thank you, Angela, for being with us. Thank you so very much, Doug, for having me. It was so much fun. Yeah, same here. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. 
The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Thank you.